0: What do today's loyalty programs look like, and how are they evolving post-COVID? I'm Po Ye, a partner in Manat's advertising marketing and media practice, and this is Perfect Balance, an advertising law podcast from Manat. In a world where technology has exponentially increased options for consumers to spend their money and time, Loyalty programs are becoming even more important for brands hoping to differentiate their offerings for customer acquisition and retention purposes. For today's episode, I'm joined by Jen Millard, who is a Managing Director with Manat Digital and Technology and has decades of experience in omni-channel retail technology and financial services, including loyalty programs. Jen, welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Poe. Thanks for having me today. Pleasure to be here. Jen, I love loyalty programs. I'm sure you do too. I like the idea of getting something in value back for spending my money. I feel like I'm losing out or somehow being cheated if I don't earn points or get some other benefit from my patronage. I tend to sign up for everything. Unfortunately, this means that I have a stack of loyalty cards at home, most of which I forget about completely, and they just end up cluttering my drawer. I know why I like loyalty programs, but I'd like to explore with you why companies like to sponsor loyalty programs. What are their key business objectives? So the key objectives that companies have to sponsor loyalty programs are primarily around
1: customer acquisition and retention. Underneath both of those efforts really lies the desire to capture information about the customer. So while you as the consumer sign up for rewards or reward values as you're participating in those loyalty programs, Underneath those programs at the foundation, they are really around insights and data around your behavior with that retailer. So they will stand up a loyalty program to encourage that customer to continue to share their data. They will then continue to aggregate the data across all their consumers and then take the trend behavior off that data. So it may inform new product line extensions. It may inform pricing and it may inform retention practices encouraging you to spend more than you normally would at their locations.
0: It's interesting because as a consumer, I'm not really thinking about data. I'm thinking about what I can get back for spending money. I think about if I were to spend $100 with this particular retailer, I'm going to be able to get 10 cents back or a dollar back. Most people do not read the small print in their loyalty programming. And in the small print of the loyalty
1: program, it is very clear that it is in exchange for your data, we will provide you with certain services or certain rewards.
0: And talking about data, there must be lots of challenges in achieving this business objective of getting more data from consumers, even if most consumers don't even realize that. What are some of those challenges?
1: Well, certainly in the current climate where you have states that are really being aggressive around consumer privacy, you have some challenges just in how loyalty programs can operate and what is considered personally identifiable information. So I don't believe that customers often understand that they are really trading their data and their behavior insights in exchange for that reward. And there are states like Virginia and California that have taken more aggressive actions than at the federal level to enhance the protections around consumer privacy. Loyalty programs are struggling with that currently and typically build their programs to meet the strictest state requirement. The retailers that run the programs have to be very, very close to the changing landscape of the law and are often relying on their vendors and their legal professionals to help keep them in the right.
0: It's interesting that you are talking a lot about data, but with data, I think about personalization the ability for loyalty program sponsors to personalize the experience, the rewards, so that I do want to spend money with a particular retailer. I do want to accumulate points, and I do want to redeem those points for rewards. And I imagine the data plays a big part in that.
1: It is impossible to do personalization without data. So personalization is a key focus right now across financial services, across retail, across advertising, and across loyalty. Loyalty data often informs personalization efforts by all of those groups. So personalization is really a byproduct of the data and the knowledge that they garner across the cohorts of customers that they have. For example, if you do not eat Indian food in your family by your credit card history, There are reasons to not serve you an offer for Indian food. You don't appear to be a promiscuous shopper. You don't eat at multiple types of restaurants. Perhaps you only eat Italian food. A personalized offer for you may be, in fact, just Italian-oriented food and not other cuisines. So the more granular the data, the more personalized you can actually make the offer and engage the customer with what's appropriate for them.
0: So we talked a lot about data, but I'd like to pivot and talk a little bit about the cost of starting a loyalty program as well as operating one.
1: Sure. So traditionally, loyalty programs were very expensive to launch. They typically required a points currency, a tiered mechanism, and a burn mechanism. You obviously needed to be able to redeem your points against some other type of value. As we have become more digitally capable and candidly accelerated by COVID, and I would say the democratization of of point-of-sale systems, most entry-level point-of-sale systems today contain a self-contained loyalty program. So in many cases, a small or medium sized restaurant, for example, likely runs on Square or Toast or those types of point of sale platforms, they typically have a very light loyalty application applied inside those actual platforms. So they're included in the monthly costs of those platforms. Those take a lot of the operational burden where you'd have to pay a third party, you're already paying for that in the platform itself. And they're typically very light programs. As you move up the food chain, so to speak, to the larger corporate entities, and as you enter sort of hospitality and airlines, that's where you can really start really having to evaluate your cost basis. Because not only do you have the operational costs of supporting the millions of customers that you have enrolled in the program and keeping all their accounts up to date and current, you also have the liabilities that you incur for future point values, And those liabilities sit on your balance sheet as a current open liability. So a lot of the larger corporate entities that run rewards programs during COVID have actually been pinched because no one was able to travel. Nobody was booking hotel rooms with points. Nobody was booking airline tickets with points. So those points have been staying on their balance sheets and no one has been burning them. So that's sort of an additional cost. So the big effort that I see right now in larger entities is actually how do you increase burn for consumers? How do you get consumers to start spending their point banks again and encouraging them to do more leisure travel with their points bank? So you're seeing a shift from a focus on businesses that had supported business travel. You're now seeing a shift into leisure and leisure travel for families. I think the best example of that is actually the most recent Marriott Bonvoy program that they have just extended for the summer. It's completely focused on family travel, which is a very unique position for them. They are part of the old Starwood group, which was solely focused on business travel in years prior.
0: I have been getting a lot of those emails from Bonvoy recently. It's very interesting how you're talking about the liability management. How do you manage a liability on your books? To me, it sounds like the solution is to have more appealing reward options. The more options you have, the more reasons to spend or burn. So I think you have
1: two dynamics. You have a demographic dynamic where digitally native consumers, Gen Y, Gen Z, pick your Gen, candidly aren't going to save points. Like their behavior is not accruing points for some future reward. It is typically instant gratification driven. And you see a lot of the programs being created for those digitally native demographics to focus on instant cashback or instant rewards or instant rewards focused on experiences. They're less about saving up for a big experience. They're more about what's in it for me today. The traditional programs that carry most of the burden on the balance sheet, you summed it up in give me better options to burn my currency or lower the redemption values so that I can get more for my value. You're starting to see some changes in the landscape with open banking and API-driven services, where you may get an offer on Chase to burn all your American Airlines miles. So you're starting to see coalitions of groups that are participating in an API economy that are allowing the redemption of points in everyday spend ways where customers can choose to find their values.
0: Well, that is really interesting. Loyalty programs have been evolving for some time now, especially with new technologies that make it easier for program sponsors to create a more personalized and simpler user experience and manage the programs more efficiently. And we just talked about how personalization is so important, especially to entice customers to burn the accumulated points. I'm intrigued by two relatively new concepts or platforms that have been gaining momentum recently fractional shares, and loyalty cryptocurrency, or the use of digital loyalty wallets. How do these new concepts or platforms work, and how can they address some of the challenges that we just discussed, especially the burn issue?
1: It's always about the burn, for sure. Um, Well, let's start on the crypto side, because I think that's the newest type of reward. Obviously, there's a lot of activity in financial services and in loyalty using blockchain as the back end to record and permanently record values that are earned and then values that are burned. So think of it as a ledger transaction, blockchain. A crypto reward is nothing more than changing a point value to a formulaic value that provides a fractional share of a cryptocurrency or a full share of a cryptocurrency, all based on the peg of the U.S. dollar, typically. So they may be new constructs in terms of how you earn. It's a different type of currency, but the ledgers essentially work the same. So in the crypto example, there's a couple of recent credit cards that have now been issued that provide a reward balance instead of in cash. You can choose to take that in a crypto currency balance and it would sit in your wallet and you could accumulate it just like cash and you could redeem it towards anything where Bitcoin is accepted. The other fractional shares There's actually a couple competitors in that space. It tends to focus more on retention, actually, than new customer acquisition. And I think probably the most noted program is actually with Home Depot and a company called Bumped. So Bumped creates, it's a little more sophisticated than the crypto reward because that's just a standard wallet. But to reward somebody with a fractional share, they actually have to have a brokerage account. And so the entity that's supplying the back end for that technology has to open a brokerage account for each of your consumers that's in your loyalty program. So it's a little more complex in terms of regulations and rewards, but the retention factors have been off the charts. I have never seen retention factors like I have, specifically using the Home Depot example, where people are proud and give great testimonial about how excited they are to earn shares of a company where they shop every day. Now, that may be more geared towards prosumer. They do a lot of prosumer work in Home Depot, but consumers as well. With all the stay-at-home work, everyone's been focused around their house. It is really driving a, a great retention value. And that's a great use case for that type of application. I think you will see that application
0: growing over time very quickly. It is a very definition of loyalty to to own a part of a company.
1: And often, you know, the average customer, I think that's also being fueled by some of the democratization of owning stock. So there's a greater interest in being rewarded in the stock value of where you shop.
0: One of the major consequences of the digital transformation of our lives, especially in the aftermath of COVID, which most people would agree has accelerated, but did not initiate the digital transformation, is that the balance of power has shifted from brands or advertisers to consumers. And we talked a little bit about it earlier. There is a greater focus on customer empowerment today than there was, I think, even 10 years ago. And we're seeing that played out with loyalty programs as well. Would you agree with that?
1: I do. And I think COVID just added an additional momentum to acceleration that was already happening. So it just actually added the gas pedal to the acceleration. I live in Austin. I would use my personal example, I think as a good one. I shop at HEB for groceries. However, I have my groceries delivered today by Instacart. So Instacart actually owns the data of my order. And they choose to share that with H-E-B. So my loyalty to H-E-B is really because I'm choosing to have Instacart go to H-E-B. So I own all the power of where I tell Instacart to please go get my groceries. Now, it would be very easy for me to say, instead of going to HEB, i I'd like you to go to Whole Foods today. No difference to me as the consumer, except the power of choice. So that power of choice and the influence of the brand on that choice are key interactions today when you have so many parties, part of that consumer journey. It's not as simple as me going in, giving my loyalty number to HEB and walking out with my groceries. Now I can facilitate transactions on my phone, pick it up in store, on my phone, pick it up curbside, use the third party. As all those pieces get split across that universe, my data around Jen Millard and my behavior becomes increasingly more valuable to HEB because they need to encourage me to buy more because I'm not going to take the 15 or 20% that you would have thrown in the basket if you were in the store, just with random things that you see that you're like, oh, I need tinfoil. I should throw that in my cart. When you order online, you get what you ordered and not anything extra. So H-E-B and brands like your primary grocery store really have to rethink their loyalty conditioning of their consumers. How do you encourage them to buy more in a digital environment? And how do you increase basket size?
0: And what's really interesting to me about the example that you just gave is that, as we discussed earlier, brands sponsoring loyalty programs want to get data. In return, they provide rewards or reward points and, and reward options. In the case you just described, you actually have an intermediary who now has the data that the brand, the program sponsor wanted in the first place. Even though there is customer empowerment on your end as the customer, there's this middleman who is going to be wielding a tremendous amount of power because of the power of data that they now control. That is fascinating.
1: Correct. And it's the same with Grubhub or DoorDash or Uber Eats. The same. There's a third party that sits between the consumer and the destination retailer. The retailer would love to have the relationship with you. But really, my relationship in the H-E-V example is really with Instacart. I'm just preferring based on price and based on my personal experiences with H-E-V that I'm asking them to go facilitate my shopping at H-E-V.
0: With all this complexity added to loyalty programs and the newcomers and new participants, has the economics of loyalty programs changed in the past few years, both for program sponsors and customers?
1: I think that's where you see the additional emphasis on instant cash back or greater rewards for different types of behaviors. So you might earn greater cash back if you physically did the transaction yourself in the store, because the retailer knows you're likely to add something to your cart that would make it more valuable for them to give you more money to come physically to their store. If you are a traditional online shopper and you do a mixed kind of relationship with a retailer, I think that's where retailers are struggling, is should I reward the same type of behavior in a digital environment with the same currency or currency amounts as I do for an in-store visit? Because an in-store visit is so much more valuable Therefore, retailers are really being pressed to really evaluate different rewards models for different engagement types.
0: Well, Jen, since you've been working on this or working on loyalty programs for 20 some years, I'd like you to take out your crystal ball and look into it and give me a prediction for how loyalty programs will evolve in the next five years.
1: Well, I think um, one of the things we didn't talk about was the growth of paid programs, where you may have a premium tier with a paid tier. I see that reward construct starting to show up in grocery and start to show up in drug, where you have a cadence of shopping, where you want to encourage somebody on a specific cadence. So in a drugstore, it's likely around your pharmacy renewals. Roughly, you go to a drugstore once a month to pick up a script. So they're trying to lean into that foot traffic pattern to make sure that we are optimizing the one visit a month you're doing to pick up your prescriptions and to keep your loyalty at that location. The other uh, emerging piece is a focus on experiences and not on just point accumulation. This has been happening over the last five or 10 years, but really post COVID, this is really where hospitality has to make a big pivot in how they think about rewarding behavior. It used to be based on nights or miles traveled. Families and individuals are not going to accumulate platinum diamond level on Hilton, which might be 50 nights a year. So family behavior and family leisure travel needs to be rewarded differently. I don't think anyone has really figured out how to pivot from their tiered models into what that looks like, but there'll definitely be shifts and changes to adapt to more family and more small group travel.
0: What about auctions? Do you see points being used? I mean, this would be an easy way to burn, right? Auctions for NFTs or other things like that. Do you see that happening as well?
1: I think that's where the API economy really shows. So if everything is pegged to a US dollar ledger, essentially a currency is a currency. I see no reason why you couldn't earn those points somewhere and burn them against another digital type of currency.
0: Well, this is really fascinating. And there's so much more to talk about loyalty programs. And I hope you will come back to provide your views as we further explore some of the issues that we discussed today. So before we end this episode, I'd like to ask you to provide a couple of practice tips for companies that are contemplating launching a new loyalty program or refreshing an existing one.
1: So I think the first tip is to really understand who your customer is. So if you have an existing program, COVID really destroyed all algorithms around customer relationship management databases. They all need to reinforce and update what that behavior patterns look like. So they're all relatively starting at zero today. So know your customer is really the first piece and understand what motivates your customer. If your average customer is under the age of 30, it is likely not a point value accumulation that's going to motivate them to come to your location. However, if you provide instant gratification in some way or some additional services, those demographics are likely to participate in those types of rewards. Pooling of rewards, for example, in terms of trends, the ability for friends to pool rewards and share and make a great experience. You're starting to see some airlines actually allow that. JetBlue, for example, allows the pooling, a family pool of gear points. I think that's also an emerging trend where multiple people may want to pool points to pay for an Airbnb, for example, to go on a vacation together. So I think you're going to start to see more sharing and more abilities to combine and use rewards for more experience-based engagements.
0: Jen, I really can't thank you enough for these insights, and thanks to our listeners for joining us once again on Perfect Balance, an advertising law podcast from Manette. As we discussed in today's episode, Loyalty programs are evolving, and the landscape has transformed even further due to COVID. While Perfect Balance is technically an advertising law podcast, I've really endeavored to seek out topics that touch all types of marketing subjects, especially developing business trends. What I loved most about this episode is that Jen is actually not a lawyer. She's a managing director in our digital and technology consulting practice here at Manat. Getting to collaborate with colleagues like Jen as I work on new legal issues posed by these evolving business developments is really what gets me so excited about my work. If you like what you heard today and have any follow-on questions, please don't hesitate to submit them via the link in this episode's caption so we can discuss them in our upcoming mailbag episode. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Perfect Balance,
1: an advertising law podcast from Manat. The views expressed on the podcast reflect the personal views and opinions of the participants and are not intended to constitute legal advice or counsel under any circumstance. Downloading and listening to this recording do not result in the formation of an attorney, client, or other business relationship. You should not act on any information in the podcast without seeking the advice of a competent attorney licensed to practice in your jurisdiction.